Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. The book of Titus. You have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Today we will begin looking at chapter 2 on the subject of the spiritually sound church. The spiritually sound church. Follow along as I read Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 15. But as for you, Titus, speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate. Dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is above beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, Let no one disregard you. When the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at primarily verses 1 through 8. I might decide to go through the whole chapter, but it will be for sure an exposition of verses 1 through 8. But this morning is sort of an introduction to all those verses so that we understand what's taking place in the book of Titus And then we'll understand more clearly the specific instruction given in this particular chapter. So before we begin to look at this chapter in more detail, allow me to give you a little information about the book of Titus. The book of Titus is among the books of the Bible in the New Testament that we call the pastoral epistles. 
The pastoral epistles include three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These are pastoral epistles. Now, what is an epistle? Well, an epistle is a letter. Epistle just means letter. So technically, this is a letter, not a book. The three pastoral epistles were written to individuals, Timothy and Titus. By the way, Paul's letter to Philemon was the only other letter written to an individual. All his other letters were written to whole churches. So the pastoral epistles were the last three letters written by the Apostle Paul, and they were written in this order. 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy. Although the, the order in our Bibles is 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, the order of their writing was 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy and Titus were written by the Apostle Paul when he was a free man. He was not in prison. However, 2 Timothy was written during Paul's final imprisonment, which would lead to his execution as a martyr for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter to Titus was probably written sometime between 61 and 64 AD. And it's a very personal letter from the apostle to Titus. It was written to aid Titus in shepherding the flock and setting in order what remained, as we will see shortly in chapter 1, verse 5. So these three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, were epistles, that is, letters. But they're also called pastoral epistles, pastoral letters. Now, they're called pastoral epistles because they were written to instruct, exhort, and encourage these men who were engaged in gospel ministry, who were engaged in the ministry of shepherding the flock of God. Timothy and Titus were what some called apostolic representatives, for they were sent by the Apostle Paul to specific churches for very specific reasons. At Paul's direction, Timothy and Titus represented him in specific churches in order to set in order certain things, address certain spiritual issues, organize the church and its ministry. And so as apostolic representatives, they conducted pastoral ministry. They shepherded the flock. And so this letter to Titus from the Apostle Paul is among those three books or letters of the Bible that we call pastoral epistles. In writing to Titus, Paul is concerned with the condition, the activity, and the functioning of the church. The tone and the content is very pastoral in nature. And therefore, these letters are very instructive to all pastors and to the whole body of believers concerning the work of ministry given to the church. These letters speak the topics of pastoral concerns and the life of the church. Things like the nature and purpose of the church, its message, its doctrine, its ministry, the opposition that the church will face from the outside, from the world, but also from within, from false teachers that infiltrate the church. It speaks to matters of church leadership, elders and deacons and their qualifications. 
It speaks to matters of shepherding the flock, the preaching of the word, personal ministry in the last days and its challenges. And it speaks to the specific conduct of believers within the church. And so in this sense, these pastoral epistles are very pastoral in nature. They're concerned with the well-being of the church and the souls given to the care of pastors. Now this particular letter was written to Titus. Look at Titus chapter 1 verse 4. Paul writes to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now we know from Galatians 2 verse 1 that Titus accompanied the Apostle Paul for some of his travels. And in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 23, Paul calls Titus my partner and fellow worker among you. That is, Titus was a fellow minister. He was a servant and a laborer for the gospel and for the church alongside of Paul, the apostle. He labored in various churches. He shepherded the souls of God's people. Now, when Paul wrote this letter to Titus, his main concern was for the church and the souls of believers in Crete. Look at verse 5. For this reason... I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains. Now, Crete was a a large island in the Mediterranean, about 140 miles long and 35 miles wide. There are no specifics uh, concerning the planting of the church in Crete that's recorded for us in the Bible. So we do know that there were Cretans in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts 2, verse 11, and they heard the gospel there. Maybe some of them believed and took the gospel back to the island. Maybe it was evangelized by the Apostle Paul after what we have recorded in the book of Acts. We don't know for sure. But we do know from the letter to Titus that there were indeed believers in Crete, on the island of Crete. The gospel had been preached there, The church of Jesus Christ had been planted there. And Titus 1 verse 5 informs us that the apostle and Titus had previously been in Crete together. But now Paul had moved on and he leaves Titus in Crete. For what purpose? Verse 5 that he says you would set in order what remains. What is translated into English here is set into order means to correct, or to straighten out. There was unfinished business, so to speak, in Crete. He was to set in order, straighten out, make a clear path for what remains. And that phrase, what remains, gives the idea of something was falling short. It lacked something. So there was a need for Titus to organize what remains, so to speak, and give structure to it and and organize the church that it would function biblically. And so as an apostle and church planner, the apostle Paul would stay in one place for a period of time preaching the gospel, but after there were believers there and a church planted there, he would depart to go on other missionary journeys, leaving behind others to organize and set in order what remained. 
So there were believers in Crete, but that's not all that was necessary for there to be a God-glorifying church. That was just the beginning. You see, church planning involves more than just evangelism. After there are believers, there's a need to use the phrase in verse 5, set in order what remains. This involves organizing those believers to function together in local assemblies for the glory of God, developing and appointing biblical church leadership, proclaiming the gospel, defending the gospel of Christ. Believers are necessary for there to be a church, but that's not enough. Having believers, the church needs to be ordered and structured in such a way that is biblical, God-glorifying, so that they can grow to spiritual maturity and function as God has designed in fellowship with one another and in the world. That work of setting things in order begins with an essential part of any church, any sound church. And that is appointing elders, pastors, overseers, shepherds of souls. And so in verse 5, he says, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains, straighten out what is lacking. And how is he to do that? It began with, he says, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then the apostle gives specific qualifications for those who would be set apart as elders. These were men of sound doctrine who could rightly teach and preach the Word of God. They must be men of proven godly character who lived out that doctrine. In verse 6, he says, namely, more specifically, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, or faithful children, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So here, from the beginning, for a church to be set in order, so to speak, we see that there's a need for godly pastors who would be a model for every believer's life that could help stabilize the church and help it be spiritually sound. There must be sound doctrine. They have to hold fast the faithful word. They have to exhort in sound doctrine. But they also must be molded by that truth. And this is very important. Their lives must be molded by that sound doctrine so that they have godly character. So that then those pastors can say, here is the truth, here is sound doctrine, but also here's how you live in light of that truth. There had to be sound doctrine, but also, as we'll see the emphasis is throughout this book, and in particular in chapter 2, also what you might call sound living. In light of sound doctrine, then the church would be a church that's spiritually sound. 
So there must be pastors who exhort believers in that sound doctrine, who refute those who contradict, who nourish the souls of believers in the church, who shepherd the flock of God, but then who also live the truth before them. And this is a pastor's heart. This was Titus' heart. This is a man who was a godly man who was laboring for the sake of God's glory in the church. And a godly pastor desires and labors for, the spiritually, for a spiritually sound church where people can flourish and be witnesses to the world. And so for a church to have spiritual soundness, there must be a solid foundation. And that foundation is what? It's truth. Doctrine. The church must be built on sound doctrine if it's to be a sound church. And therefore, Titus was left in Crete for the purpose of seeing to it that the churches had sound doctrine. And leaders, pastors who were sound in doctrine and whose lives were shaped by sound doctrine. And it was especially critical because in this case, as is the case in any church, there were many infiltrating the church there in Crete who were contradicting sound doctrine. And therefore the apostle addresses this subject head on. Look at verse 10. For there are many rebellious men empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid or selfish gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And then he makes a statement about these false teachers that were infiltrating the church. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So here's a part of what needed to happen in order for that church to be set in order. There needed to be sound doctrine. There needed to be men who held the sound doctrine, who could preach and teach the word and refute those who contradicted because there were already false teachers infiltrating the church who needed to be reproved severely. They were upsetting whole families, the life of the whole church. Their false doctrine was having an effect on the lives of believers in the church. And therefore, Titus was to appoint elders who, along with him, could aid the whole church to be sound in faith, grounded in the truth. That was the goal. And they were to preach that sound doctrine and call the church to live lives consistent with that sound doctrine. In other words, sound doctrine was to lead to, again, sound living. But these false teachers were not living in accordance with sound doctrine. They claimed to know God through Jesus Christ, but their very lives denied that profession. They, verse 16 of chapter 1, again, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. There was a complete inconsistency 
between what they professed about their relationship to God and then how they lived their lives. The lips of these false teachers said one thing, I know God. But their deeds, their lives, declared something completely different. Their deeds denied God. It's interesting, the word translated deny in verse 16, by their deeds they deny him, is the word used in the Gospels of Peter denying Christ. Peter, in a moment of fear and spiritual weakness, denied with his lips what he, uh, that he was a disciple of Christ. I, never, I don't know him. He denied he even knew Christ. He later repented and was restored by the risen Savior. But Paul says these false teachers boldly claim to know Christ with their lips. But by their lives, they deny him. This word deny in chapter 1 verse 16 is also the word used by Jesus in Luke 9.23 when he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For a person to come after Christ, to come to Christ, he must deny himself, he must, must renounce himself, his way, his sinful ways, and follow Christ, come after him. His life will be taken up, not by doing his own will, but the will of Christ. And yet these false professors that were upsetting families and the whole church are described in this way. They were detestable, disobedient, and worthless. The word detestable means abominable, abhorrent. They were disobedient. They did not conform to sound doctrine they did not obey the commands of God. They did not deny themselves and follow Christ and His will. No, they, their lives were described as rebellious and disobedient. And then he says they're worthless. They're worthless. They're to be rejected as unfit, untrustworthy. The opposite of this word worthless, it's adakimos, the the alpha primitive means it's, it negates what the word is. Dokimos means to be approved and reliable, something that, that stands a test and therefore is genuine. He's saying these, when they put to the test of truth and not only the content of truth, but also the impact of truth upon the life, their lives, they show that they're not genuine. They fail the test. They're worthless. They're false professors. And in reality, they lived out their doctrine. For false doctrine leads to detestable, disobedient, and ungodly lives. Now what you should be observing thus far, just introducing and leading into chapter 2, is this. For a church to be sound, for things to be set in order, so that it's functioning as God intended. There must be sound doctrine. There must be those who know the truth and proclaim the truth. But there must also be sound living. Those who live the truth. Doctrine and practice are both important. For practice, how one lives flows from doctrine. What one believes. 
And a spiritually sound church has sound doctrine from which flows sound living. Now, with that backdrop, we come to chapter 2. Remember, when this was originally written, no chapters and verses. It's just a letter. There's no pause or hard stop. In fact, it flows to it. If you read verse 16... They profess to know Him, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But as for you, Timothy, here's the contrast. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. You teach, you proclaim, you shepherd the flock of God and you appoint men who will do so as well, who will speak and counsel and disciple the things that are fitting for, that is consistent with sound doctrine. So that there's a harmony of sound doctrine and sound living. And so here we see sound doctrine and sound living coming together. Our doctrine is to be sound. That is accurate. Doctrine is critically important. And sound doctrine is imperative. But there not only needs to be sound doctrine, there must be sound living. And there are things that are fitting for sound doctrine, and there are things that are not fitting or consistent with sound doctrine. And so the contrast now in chapter 2, verse 1 is, but as for you, Titus... In contrast to these who say they know him, but yet really they hold the false doctrine and they're propagating their false teaching. And that false teaching has had its influence upon their lives so that they're now detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. In contrast to that, but as for you, you speak the things that are fitting for and consistent with sound doctrine. There must be this sound living that flows from sound doctrine. And that is why the Apostle Paul then speaks directly to the lives of believers in the church. In chapter 2, he addresses then older men in verse 2. He addresses older women in verse 3. He addresses younger women in verses 4 and 5. And younger men in verse 6. So we just read that a moment ago. But, but just put your eyeballs on it for a minute. He's to exhort those things and speak those things that are consistent with and fitting for sound doctrine. Now how does that now flesh out? Well, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. How is sound doctrine fleshed out? In the life of an older woman, she's to be reverent, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that then they may encourage, here's the young women, as they have lived out sound doctrine in their homes, in their lives, now they can encourage the younger women to do the same, to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, being subject to their own husbands, 
so that the word of God would not be dishonored. And likewise, urge young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself. Now he's speaking to Titus, who was probably among the young men. We'll talk about that uh, next time. But young men, in this context, would have been men who were about the age of 50 and below. So some of you fall in the category, maybe you thought you were an old man, but you're in younger men. But Titus was among the young men, so verse 7 flows into, In all things show yourself, Titus, to be an example of good deeds. With purity and doctrine, but then that affects how you live. Dignified, sound in speech, which is above reproach. Why? So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say say about us. You see, sound doctrine has implications for every person in the church, male and female, for those who are younger and those who are older. Let me put it this way, and again, this is just to introduce so that when we get to the details of the chapter, you understand what's being emphasized. You're kind of stepping back and looking at the broader context so that then we can see why this is so important when we get into the details. Let me put it this way. Truth is not meant only to be believed, but lived. Truth is not only meant to be confessed, but applied. Sound doctrine is not simply contained within creeds, but it is to be fully functioning within churches and in the lives of believers. Sound doctrine is not just to be penned on paper, published in books, and disseminated in various ways, but sound doctrine is to be operative in the lives of believers and in the life of the church. We do not want dead orthodoxy, but living and vibrant truth. For there are not many things more harmful and damaging to the testimony of the church. There are not many things more harmful to the reputation of the name of Jesus Christ than a church that believes one thing and lives another. This is the essence of hypocrisy. It is duplicity. Hypocrisy and duplicity in the church are enemies of of God's glory. Hypocrisy and duplicity is to be sought out, it is to be rooted out, and it is to be destroyed that integrity and godliness might reign among the people of God. That is how The church is to be set in order. This is what needed to be straightened out, so to speak. Yes, there were believers, so there was a church. But, although they held the sound doctrine, there's the infiltration of false teachers and false doctrines beginning to have its impact, it's beginning to erode, so that now these detestable, disobedient, worthless doctrines and the implications in the lives of those teaching them was beginning to erode godliness in the church. People were beginning to be confused about what was true about how they should live in light of sound doctrine. So Titus is told, yes, 
Sound doctrine must be the foundation, but flowing from that and built upon that must be lives that are sound, lives that are godly. Truth is to be lived out. The old men need to live it out. The old women need to live it out. The young women, the young men. Everybody in the church, there's implications for the truth upon every soul. Hypocrisy is to be rooted out in the church. Anytime there's inconsistency between what we say we believe and what we live, we should seek to repent. You remember the Apostle John addresses such duplicity and hypocrisy in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where he writes, God is a light, and in Him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The Apostle John was known as the Apostle of Love. Does that sound very loving? I would say it does. He loves the church. He loves the glory of God in the church. And so he's speaking truthfully and honestly. He says some people are liars. They're saying one thing and yet walking contrary to what they say. They say they have fellowship with him, but yet they're walking in the darkness. They're liars. They're liars. The worst liar of all is one who claims to know God savingly, to say that he has fellowship with God. The one who is a light, the one, they, they claim, I've been reconciled through faith in Jesus. I've been brought into fellowship with the one who is holy, holy, holy. And then they walk in darkness. There is no greater liar. And John here in speaking so boldly is not excluding himself. He too would be a liar if he had said he had fellowship with God and yet walked in darkness. So he says, if we say this and yet we walk this way, if we say one thing and live another, then we lie. He includes himself and he's willing to call himself a liar if his life did not match his profession of faith. So John is speaking of an inconsistency between one's creed and one's life. One's profession, what he says, and the pattern of his life, his walk. For when there is this inconsistency, it's what again we often call dead orthodoxy. This is a profession without a life affected by one's profession. This is orthodox confession without godly affection. This is saying one thing and living another. They're nothing but meaningless words. We don't want dead orthodoxy. We want living orthodoxy. We are striving for orthodox confession and godly affection and holy direction of one's life. The true believer desires that truth be applied and lived out. And the same can be said of a true church. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, holiness happens. Godliness increases when our lives match our doctrine. When we walk in a manner consistent with the gospel, when our walk matches our confession 
And this brings glory to God. This is a spiritually sound church. This is a healthy church and a growing church. And that's what the Apostle Paul wanted for these believers in the church in Crete. He wanted them to live consistently with what they believed. He wanted their lives to match sound doctrine because truth is not meant to only be believed but to be lived. Because truth has an effect on our lives, doesn't it? The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word is operative and effective. It's active in the life of believers. It's active in the life of the church. And God is active in the lives of believers and His church, working His will in them by His truth through the indwelling Holy Spirit and through His Word. Therefore, there's something wrong when we hold to the truth without the truth taking hold of us. Truth must direct every area of our lives and the whole of our being. This is the emphasis throughout the Bible, and specifically in this letter to Titus. The apostle is concerned that truth be believed and that truth be lived. And when there is sound doctrine accompanied by corresponding sound living, then you have a spiritually sound church. So when you evaluate this body of believers, when we consider Grace Fellowship Church, There are believers here. There's sound doctrine here. And that's the foundation. But for it to be a spiritually sound church that's going to to, to function biblically as God intended in this world, then there must be sound living that flows from that. For this is a spiritually sound church. We might call it a healthy church. I don't use the word healthy a whole lot when it comes to spiritual things because health and wholeness has just been used in a particular way in the therapeutic community that has lessened the meaning of that word. So why use the word healthy? Well, it's because the word sound found here in chapter 2 verse 1 and throughout the epistle is a word that literally means healthy. It's used of physical wellness and health. But spiritually speaking, it's talking about spiritual soundness. When the body is sound, there's there's health and wellness. When there's sound doctrine and then sound living in light of that doctrine, then the church is sound, the church is healthy, and it's functioning as God intended. So again, when sound doctrine intersects with sound living, then you find a sound church, a spiritually healthy church. So let me just pause and ask you, what is the relationship between what you believe and how you live? Is what you believe really all that important to you? Are you in a pursuit of sound doctrine? Doctrine affects how you live. Well, how is it affecting how you live? Or is what you believe just something you confess, profess with your lips, but it has no practical impact on your life? 
It must have an impact on your life. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, Paul refers to the doctrine conforming to godliness. And there, there's the wedding of the two. There's the doctrine, there's truth, but it's the doctrine conforming to godliness. When there's sound doctrine, it always leads to godliness when it's believed and treasured and loved and obeyed. But there is doctrine that's not conforming to godliness. There's teaching, doctrine, even in the church, that actually conforms to ungodliness. And that's why those who want to live sinfully gravitate to those who teach doctrine that's consistent with their sin. We see it all around. There are churches everywhere. They, they fly the, the pride flags. They teach a doctrine that is not conforming to godliness, but the exact opposite. And they're proud of it. And they use the word. They've gone and found doctrine consistent with what they want to live in their, their sinful lives. This is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, there will come a time when they will not endure sound doctrine. They're not going to put up with it anymore. Why? Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate. They're not just happy with one teacher. They will accumulate for themselves teachers, and many of them, in accordance with their own desires. So they have desires. Here's how I want to live my life. Let me go find those whose teaching will be in accordance with how I want to live. And because right doctrine, sound doctrine, biblical doctrine challenges the ungodly, convicts them of sin, they turn away from it. They don't want to hear it. But in a true church among true believers... Our souls are nourished by it. We want to hear the truth of God's word. Not just so we can say, oh, we signed a petition for membership. We're in agreement with those things. Oh, we got it on our website. We are reformed. No, we want it fleshed out in how we live. So right doctrine should lead to right living. must be applied. But it's inevitably true that wrong doctrine leads to wrong living and ungodly living. So we need to guard the truth. And so you, you know, read this week through Titus. It's, it's very short. Read through it several times and just see this consistency and this concern that Paul has and now Timothy is called to do. Exhort in sound doctrine, but exhort... In sound living. For the two must go together. So as we go through this chapter, I have some specific purposes in it that I believe are really purposes that Paul intended when he wrote it and then application that flows out of it. And among my purposes for preaching through these verses are these. First, as I've already been laboring, just leading up to chapter 2, my purpose is to see how sound doctrine is practical and is to be practically lived out. 
There should be a consistency between doctrine and practice, doctrine in the practice of the church, doctrine in the life of the church, doctrine in the lives of those who are in the church, corporately and privately. And I want us to connect the dots between doctrine and life. Connect the dots. You hear us say that as elders sometimes because it's a helpful, helpful illustration. My children aren't little anymore, but, so I'm assuming this still exists, but connect the dots. You know, the, like similar to coloring books in which they're just dots on a page and sometimes they're, they're numbers for the first dot and here's the second dot. And it teaches the child, start with number one and connect the dot to the second dot and then the third dot. And as they connect the dots, it looks first random, but then as you connect the dots, there's a picture that begins to appear. And then they can color the picture. Well, doctrine is, are dots, and they're connected. There's unity to the truth. But doctrine is also connected to life, how one lives. And so when those dots from doctrine to practice, doctrine to life, sound doctrine to sound living are connected, then you have a picture. It's a picture of holiness and godliness. It's a picture of a sound life, a godly life in a sound and godly church. And so if you take that illustration and think of it in terms of Titus chapter 2, It's the Apostle Paul saying, connect the dots. As for you, Timothy, you speak the things that are consistent with and fitting for sound doctrine. Now, here's what that looks like with older men and what their lives look like and older women and what their lives look like and younger women and younger men and even those who find themselves in the circumstance of a slave. Here's what it looks like to connect doctrine to practice. For the grace of God has appeared. And it instructs us to, to live right, sensibly and righteously in this present evil age. And, and you begin to connect all these dots and you say, oh, what a beautiful picture the church is. Another purpose for preaching in Titus chapter 2 is to see the necessity of both godly men and godly women in the church. I just preached, I think it was 14 sermons on a call for men to be godly. Well, here we see the necessity not only of godly men, but godly women. And not just godly older men and older women, but godly younger men and younger women. And this chapter will touch on, although not exhaustively gender, in certain places, gender roles, It will touch on generations of believers and how they relate to God's standard of living and holiness and that it's the same for all. And then finally, another goal and purpose I have is to see how godliness is then specifically described in these verses. That we might lay hold of those things by God's grace. That we might be those things by God's grace that Grace Fellowship Church would be a spiritually sound church with sound doctrine and sound living. And so we'll see 
that a spiritually sound church, a spiritually healthy church, has pastors who speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. And that it has men who live out sound doctrine, older and younger, and women who purpose to live out sound doctrine. Another way of looking at the passage, and we'll look at this as we go through it. In verse 1, you have a command. It's to Titus. And what he is to speak, how he is a pastor is to exhort and instruct those things that are fitting and consistent with sound doctrine. But then you'll see the categories, you might say. He breaks it up. There's male and female, older and younger. And, and some things are unique to that particular group, so to speak, and their roles and what godliness looks like as God has created male and female with different roles and responsibilities. But then you'll see the character. That what this looks like, and in essence it's the same. You'll see words that are described. For example, sensible is used for every category. And you'll see commonality in what that godly character looks like and the impact it has upon the lives of all in the church, not just some. But then you'll see the cause or the concern the ultimate cause and concern is for the glory of God. You see that in verse 8. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So the opponent can't rightly point the finger and say, hypocrites. And then in verse 10, they're applied to slaves as they live out sound doctrine in their circumstances, he says, so that they will adorn the gospel of God our Savior in every respect. The word adorn means to beautify. So that they would beautify the gospel. And that is the cause. That's the main concern that we have. That God would be glorified in the life of the church as the world watches. So does your life match your doctrine? Do your deeds deny, refute, and contradict what you say you believe? When you learn the truth, is it for the purpose of applying it, or do you just come to hear it so you can say, yes, that's good, amen? And are you connecting the dots between what you believe and how you live? And when you do, a beautiful picture is drawn. It would be a picture of a spiritually sound church, sound in doctrine, sound in practice, which will adorn and beautify the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will ultimately be a picture of the glory of God, the holiness of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, and the grace of God in salvation. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, I pray, use Your Word as the Apostle Paul, born along by the Spirit, penned these words, the Holy Spirit bearing him along to pen sacred Scripture as it was to have its effect upon the lives of those believers in Crete may it have its effect upon the lives of those here at Grace Fellowship Church so that we might be those who hold to sound doctrine and live sound doctrine 
sound doctrine and sound living and all to the glory of our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.